Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. On a mixtape just around the corner Did a lot in California Can't wait to drop this on you Yeah, they gon' have fun with that Smash like song and my song's gon' break through like a running back Hello and welcome to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One My name is Mark Hamilton And not joining me today, my friend, my colleague, my neighbor, my friend I mean, Mr. Mark Daly And that's because his never-ending vacation is continuing. He is currently in the nation's capital, taking in the sights and sounds of Ottawa. But that's a good news story because it means I get to trial, I get to audition a new co-host that may potentially replace him. I just, I just, Daly's going to be back in a week. But I'm incredibly excited today to be joined by the host, the producer of the DNF F1 podcast, Adam Burns. Adam, welcome to the show. How the heck are you? Well, hi, Mark. Hi, everyone. And uh, thank you so much for the warm welcome. It's uh, a real honor to be called up to the big leagues and join you on your show. So <laughs> yeah, thank you for having me. Very, very much appreciate you joining on short notice. And for everybody listening at home, I actually had the opportunity to join Adam on his podcast a couple of days ago, and we did a really fun uh, mid-season review, and we broke down the all of the teams and we give them letter grades. We we aligned in some cases in terms of how we thought certain teams were were performing, but in other cases, we div- diverged quite significantly. Now, we've got a ton of news stories to get to today, and that's what today's episode is. It's a news episode. It's been a couple of weeks since we've done them, and despite the fact that it's the summer break, there's some really interesting stuff happening in the world of Formula One. But before we get there, a couple of quick updates. Shout out JT the Human. Once again, thank you so much for providing us with some fantastic custom tracks to play in and and function as outros to our podcast. Very much appreciate that. Also, I wanted to let everybody know, if you don't, that Red Racer Books, the company that was founded by a friend of the show, Andy Amendola, has a new book out. So I would make sure you go to Twitter, follow at redracerbooks.com, give it a look. If you haven't picked up the first book in the series, it's fantastic, ABC's uh, Formula One. That is a great book. The second book is even better. It deep dives into the technology and the function of all of the cars. So totally worth checking out if you haven't already. Now, a couple of things I did want to quickly get to because I owe it to all of our listeners at home is a quick look at the championship standings. I'm not going to run 20, 20, 20 drivers deep, 10 teams deep, but right at the top of the standings, as most of you probably already know, and it's a bit of a refresher as we inch closer and closer to Spa. Max Verstappen is currently leading the driver's championship by 80 points over Charles Leclerc. He sits on 258 points. Charles Leclerc is 178. Sergio Perez, despite the fact that he's been a little bit softer in some of the recent races, sits at 173. George Russell sits at 158. Carlos Sainz of Ferrari sits at 156. Lewis Hamilton currently sitting at number six. He's had five straight podiums, sits on 146 points. Lando Norris with his sole podium from Imola earlier this season sits at 76 points. Esteban Ocon sits at 58. Valtteri Bottas sits on 46. And Fernando Alonso, who of course is moving to Aston Martin shortly, sits on 
41 points in the constructor standings. Red Bull sits at 431 points. Ferrari sits at 334 points. Mercedes sits on 304 points. Alpine Renault sits on 99. McLaren Mercedes disappointingly sits on just 95 points. Alfa Romeo Ferrari sits on 51. Soon, potentially, to be Audi, and Adam and I are going to talk a little bit about that. Haas Ferrari sits on 34 points. Alfa Tauri sits on 27. Aston Martin sits on 20. And Williams disappointingly sits on just 3 points in the standings. And then finally, a quick look at our F1 fantasy standings. Again, thank you so much to the two thousand people that signed up for our fantasy pool. Again, we are still incredibly, incredibly shocked and excited and blessed that we have so many people that were interested in taking part in this. And of course, we are going to have prizes for the top three finishers, which will be finalized, formalized, hopefully in the next couple of weeks. But our current top 10 is Andrew T from the UK, 2,683 points, followed by Adam J from Canada, 2,609 points. Whitman R from the UK, 2,563 points. Thaddeus F, 2,549 points. Ludwig Y, 2,535 points. Noah F from Canada, 2,527 points. Marshall W, 2,526 points. Roman M, 2,522 points. Jesse W, 2,512 points. And then finally, Byron H with 2,509 points. Beautiful. All right, with that said, we can probably start getting into some of the topics for today's show. Adam, are you ready to jump into some F1 news and gossip? Oh, I was born ready for this one, Mark. (laughs) Okay, fantastic. So we've got a couple of stats, and I wanted to share a couple of these with you because I thought these were pretty interesting. But currently, and this comes from Sky Sports F1, year-to-date, Max Verstappen sits on 10 podiums, followed by Lewis, Sergio Perez, and Carlos Sainz with six podiums apiece. Shockingly, Charles Leclerc, who currently sits second in the World Drivers' Championship, has five podiums. And of course, our friend Lando Norris, the British driver racing for McLaren, has just the one podium, which we mentioned a couple of minutes ago. But this one, I'm going to kick it over to you because I kind of want your thoughts on this one. If you look at Williams, and you and I talked extensively about Williams a couple of days ago when we did our midseason review, if you look at that team... So far this year, Albon has outscored Nicholas Latifi 10 to 3 in Grand Prix. He's outqualified him 11 to 2. He's scored or he has 3 points to 0 points um, and he simply outperforms him. Quickly from your perspective because you are in the UK, you're closer to Oxfordshire, you're closer to Grove. Williams is of course a British centric team. For everybody sitting here on the North American side of the Atlantic, What is the current perception of Williams? Are people disappointed? Is this where people thought they would be? And what is the perception of that dynamic between Alex Albon and Nicholas Latifi? Well, I mean, if you cast your mind back to 2014, which was the last time Williams were anywhere near competitive, you know, they were the second best team uh, behind Mercedes at the time. And most of that was owing to the OP Mercedes power unit that they were running in their car. I mean, nobody was under any illusion that Williams, if you took out all of the engines from every single car, that Williams had the second best car on the grid. Nowhere, nowhere near that. You know, Red Bull, Ferrari, um, even Lotus to a degree, you could argue, had a more competitive car. And But all that aside, you know, when they had uh, Massa and Bottas, you know, there was occasion where there'd be a Ford and Mercedes side. They'd be challenging them. They'd be on podiums. There was even one or two occasions. I remember the Austrian Grand Prix, they were running one and two and people were sort of thinking, right, how are they going to manufacture this so that they can win the race? And they completely bottled it uh, on strategy. Mercedes beat them anyway. 
compare that to now, Williams would trade a, quite a lot to be in that position again. And it, it's been quite a sobering, um, almost nightmarish uh, fall from grace for a Williams team that has won almost more championships than any other team with the exception of Ferrari, of course, in F1's history. They've won so many Grand Prix. The Williams name in the UK reeks of of Formula One motorsport heritage. It really, really does. And it's just such a shame to see how far that they've fallen to the point now where we're trying to find ways to be optimistic about them potentially returning to the midfield. Bear in mind, we're in a new regulation set as well for 2022. So this was an opportunity for them to make some progress. As it stands, they haven't done that. They've fallen a bit further back from their competition. So Right now, as we discussed on on my show before, Mark, it's really hard to find positives with the team. That said, the one positive that we can agree on is Alex Albon, not only returning to the sport, technically kind of on loan from Red Bull, it must be said. And of course, the nature of that uh, agreement with the team and Red Bull, of course, uh, remains to be seen. But he is going to be there for the medium term. And that is a very, very good thing. Probably the best thing for Williams right now is keeping Alex Albon in the team. Obviously replacing George Russell had some big shoes to fill, but he has done really well this season. And there's a good dynamic there with Nicholas Latifi. Granted, Latifi is not performing to the level that some people might have hoped that he would be. He's not been terrible, of course, but there is definitely a quality difference between the two. And given all of the rumours that have been going on on the transfer mill, you know, regarding Oscar Piastri, for example, was he going to join? That doesn't look likely at this point. Nick DeVries might be tempted to go there. Even if that doesn't happen and they keep Latifi on for a little while longer, Williams have something that they can build on, but it's very much going to be dependent on what Alex Albon does. Because right now, they're completely classes apart with all due respect to Latifi. If you look at their historical relevance to the sport, nine constructors championships, although of course not one since 1997, seven drivers championships, again, none since 1997, 114 Grand Prix victory and 313 podiums. You're right that since 2014, when they were a bit of a surprise as we transitioned into the new engine regulations, they have been very much irrelevant in the championship. And you touched on something that I find really interesting, which is, you know, I think I think we were all willing to give them the benefit of the doubt in 2020 and 2021 that just the car was fundamentally broken and it made no sense to invest your limited resources in fixing a car that was going to be replaced. But what do you think went so wrong that we went into 2020, a completely new regulation set, and yet they're exactly where they were last year. In fact, you could argue that maybe maybe they're even a little farther back. What do you think went so wrong coming into the season? Well, relatively speaking, they went the wrong way on design philosophy. Now, I could kind of extend this to something a bit bigger than perhaps what it is right now. But I mean, if you, if you grant me it, listeners, I'll try and explain why I think this is a bit of a problem for Williams in the short term. Um the fact that they've had this partnership, technical partnership with Mercedes, obviously that's been grown. It was something that was reported a little while back that they were going to expand that for 2022. Um, and that didn't involve just power unit, um, you know, use of the Mercedes power unit and stuff like that, that other customer teams have had, like Aston Martin and McLaren, for example. It was it was more centred around the gearbox, more centred around the rear of the car and the chassis, etc. And there was a big gamble that if Mercedes were going to develop a car that was going to be fantastic, by proxy of that, Williams should have relative access to a degree. Of course, the regulations are a bit different to what they were with listed parts for this season compared to previous ones. Williams will be able to use that momentum and use those parts to move forward on their own. As we saw at the start of the season, 
Mercedes were by far from the world beaters that we expected them to be, as they have been over the last seven or eight years. And by extension of that, what Williams went from their own philosophy just didn't work. Um, a great example of this, to prove my point, is the side pod concept that Williams went down. They went from not necessarily a Mercedes style, um, because obviously they're not running high pods, but they did have small side pods, um, much smaller than a lot of the other teams did. They went a completely different way to the likes of Ferrari and Red Bull, for example. In the big summer upgrade that they had uh, around about the Spanish Grand Prix, and then they developed it further into Silverstone, they changed the complete concept and went for a more Red Bull-style side pod concept, which has brought them tangible gains. Relatively speaking, yes, they are a little bit closer, but they have fallen away compared to where they were last season. So they really are still languishing at the back, but they're in the game now. And they do need the likes of Albon to really bring them forward. And they have to keep trying to upgrade this car and improve it because they're talking about the potential here. But right now... We're trying to find reasons to be positive about the team that is clearly the slowest on the grid right now. So that's not an easy thing to do. So just abandoning that original concept they had from Mercedes has been a real plus for them. But it's just shown that when you go the wrong way on concept for the start of the season, it can really peg you back in a new regulation set when they're kind of having to start again where everyone else is six months ahead of them already. I have one more question for you on on the Williams team, because this is something that I find a little bit perplexing. A couple of years ago, the Dalton team, the Dalton company comes in and they they purchase the team away from the Williams family. And again, as sad as that was, I think ultimately the Williams team simply just didn't have the financial capacity to compete in Formula One. And I think that the thought was, that's a very odd marriage that this company, Dalton, who has no experience with professional sports, buys a Formula One team. And people speculated at the time that they're a objective was either to function as a front for a different party and that that party would be revealed at a later date, or they simply saw the potential increase in the valuation of Formula One teams and bought them with the plan to flip it. What do you think the long game is for Doralton here? Because again, they've been here for a couple of years now. Uh, Obviously, they've been a part of the change in the regulation. They were there for the Concord Agreement in 2020, but the team hasn't improved under them, even if we can speak to the fact that internally, institutionally, there's probably been some really great change and some really great people injected into this organization. What do you think is the end game? And we're speculating a little bit here, but what do you think the end game is for Doralton? Are they in this? for the long term or did they buy this team simply with the uh, objective of polishing it up and selling it on in truth i don't really know if i'm honest because i think originally when doralton capital invested in buying the team from the williams family i think like you said the intention was perhaps the short medium term and of course during the pandemic that was quite a difficult period for williams where they really needed this sale to go through in order for the team to survive. You know, they were, I think it was like nearly probably a hundred million in debt or something crazy like that. It's just not, wasn't sustainable for the team. And I mean, we saw how bad the situation was. I think it was in, um, it might've been 2018 20, or 2019 actually, where, or maybe 2020, well, one of those years where Williams, they struggled to bring a car to preseason testing until day three. And it just showed how bad things had gotten for the team financially and how, the structure just wasn't working. So they had to change a lot. Obviously, Doralton Capital came in, invested in the team, bought the team outright. Now they own and run the team. What they want to do long-term 
I'm not sure, but it may have grown into something that has convinced them to perhaps stick around and perhaps invest in this team more. Not necessarily on the level as perhaps Aston Martin are currently doing right now, where they have ambitions to win world championships, win racing, but at least to a point where they are competitive and enjoying points, finishes, and and maybe in the future on a crazy race, they might challenge for a podium here or there. I mean, Hungary last year was a great example of Latifi putting himself in the right position in that crazy race. Getting in, you know, in the ballpark for some big points. Obviously, George Russell getting that podium in Belgium, although, you know, there's a huge asterisk over that one because of the way that race never actually happened and yet it did. Um, so we'll have to wait and see. But I think the influx of the American market that's increased so much owing to the drive to survive generation of fans really taken to F1. I mean, the amount of interviews I've seen on US shows, I think it was um, Jimmy Fallon the other day or Jimmy Kimmel. So apologies, I'll get them two mixed up. Um, but I think they were talking to. Uh, I can't remember who the actress was, but she was going on about how she loved the new Drive to Survive series. It made her obsessed with Formula One and the American audience that were there were really engaging with this. And of course, there's that new Brad Pitt film um, as well. That's in addition to that. So I think Doriton Capital have kind of not necessarily got ahead of the game in terms of this new American market interest in Formula One that's growing exponentially. We've got two new races. Well, we've got Miami race and a Vegas race next year. The impact is getting bigger and bigger. But I feel like because of that, they might have changed their mindset on how long they wanted to stay in F1. I think they've stumbled upon an opportunity here where they might be able to cash in as a home brand in, to some degree and see where that takes William in in the mean t- medium term. I completely, completely agree. And I think the world of Formula One and the world of Formula One economics has fundamentally changed in the couple of years since Doralton bought that organization. And I don't think, I don't think there's any world in which they could have predicted that it would have changed in such a favorable way for them. And you're right that maybe their objective originally was to optimize the organization and prepare it for a sale so they could flip it and make some money. But all of a sudden, maybe there's a desire to stick around and see this Formula One project through simply because the the revenues associated being with being part of the grid are, are so exponentially higher. Um, one other quick chart I want to get your thoughts on before we jump into the news stories here, but at F1 Charts published a really cool infographic a couple of days ago, and it lists by team the total number of DNFs as an average by season during the turbo hybrid era, and maybe some surprises here. During the turbo hybrid era, which of course started in 2014, the team that's averaged the most DNFs per season has been Alpine Renault with 9.4. Haas, probably not a surprise to see them at the top with 9. Next, AlphaTauri with 9. Then McLaren with 8.2. And of course, during this era, in 2014, they were running a Mercedes power unit. They switched to a Honda power unit. They switched to a Renault power unit. They switched back to a Mercedes power unit. And then we have Alfa Romeo Sauber with 7.7 DNFs per season as an average. Red Bull was 6.9. Williams was 6.7. Aston Martin, of course, they started this era as Force India, became Racing Point, and then became Aston Martin. They've averaged 6.1 DNFs per season. Ferrari with just 5.6. And then at the bottom... And this just talks to the supreme reliability of a perennial champion. Mercedes, since 2014, has averaged just 2.6 DNFs per season. My friend, just absorbing that chart, any surprises there or based on the results when we look at the historical standings of Formula One, does that kind of make sense to you? Yeah, just looking at the chart that you kindly kindly forwarded over to me before uh, we were recording this. Um I mean, it's amazing. It's just a true testament to how 
good Mercedes have been in this turbo hybrid era. I mean, we talk often about how they dominated the turbo hybrid era through the, how good their engine was or how good their car became. And, you know, it's any caveats that were relevant to that, but the reliability has been phenomenal. And bear in mind last season, reliability was a problem for them. I mean, Valtteri Bottas, I think he had like engine penalties almost every other race. And towards the end of the season, we all remember the struggles that Lewis Hamilton had and how he had to run a new power unit almost every other race and overcome deficits like engine penalties. I mean, we, we all remember what happened at Brazil last season, how phenomenal that was. But it was one of those races where everyone was saying, well, he would have won it by a country mile if he didn't have to start from the back because of the engine problems he had and and stuff like that. So, it is an absolute testament to how great Mercedes have been in this turbo hybrid era. I mean, we should obviously praise all of the teams collectively for how much better they've become um, reliability-wise over the uh, latter stages of the turbo hybrid era. I mean, just again, looking at the chart, you can see up to 20, uh, 2017, 2018, there's quite a high number. But then, of course, it takes a massive nosedive where reliability improves so much more, where breakthroughs were found by engine manufacturers, performance. Obviously, the performance gap as well was being closed while this was happening to the point where Mercedes, you could argue even today, probably don't have the best power unit. I mean, perhaps if you take performance to reliability compared, they're definitely up there with Honda and Ferrari and, and Alpine, of course. You know, you can't count them out with a Renault engine as well. So... It really does show how how reliability and performance has improved to the point where we're we're running the most sufficient energy uh, sustainable engines in the sport has ever seen, perhaps in in all of motorsport and even in road cars if you compare that. And it is absolutely crazy stuff. I mean, I am by no means uh, an engineering expert, and anyone that listens to this will probably already gather that I am not someone that understands um, a, a piston from a crankshaft. You know, if anyone knows how those work entirely. I'm certainly not one of them, but it really does stagger me. And I'm absolutely marveled by how great these people are, what they do. It's, it's incredible stuff. We should let these people run the world. Let them do it. They seem to know what they're doing. Yeah, I totally agree. It's it's interesting too, because a couple of weeks ago, I was reading through Elvis Priestley's book, The Mechanic. And of course, his experience in Formula One was in the early 2000s, but he speaks to an era when teams could effectively run a new power unit Every single race, you go into that race, you turn up that power unit and you just run it into the ground because you know the next race, you get a fresh power unit. And in the V8 era, which concluded in 2008, teams were allowed to use eight power units or eight engines per year before they would start incurring penalties. And of course, in the in the current world of Formula One, you get three, right? Like you get three power units and maybe it's four. I always get these two mixed up, but you get a fraction of the power unit allowance that you would ever have been allowed in previous eras. So not only is the current power unit configuration more complex and technically challenging to build and maintain than it's ever been, but you get fewer of them. So the fact that we're seeing fewer DNFs than we have historically ever seen in Formula One with a more complex power unit configuration really speaks to the genius of the people that are operating this sport. All right, everyone, we're going to take a quick break, pay some of those proverbial bills, and we'll be back in just a couple of minutes. And we're going to pick up with some of the news stories, including the breaking news that the FIA, Formula One, the commercial rights group, the teams, they've come together. They've agreed fundamentally and officially on a new power unit formula that's going to be introduced for 2026. See you on the flip side. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive 
eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello and welcome back to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. My name is Mark Hamilton. Not joining me today is Mr. Mark Daly, but that's a good thing because I've got a fantastic guest host today. Joining me from the UK, from the DNF F1 podcast, is my new friend, Mr. Adam Burns. Adam, this is a story I've been excited to talk about all week, but earlier this week, FIA President Mohammed Ben Salem said, and I quote, the FIA continues to push forward on innovation and sustainability across our entire motorsport portfolio. The 2026 Formula One Power Unit regulations are the most high-profile example of that mission. The introductions of advanced PU technology along with synthetic sustainable fuels aligns with our objective of delivering benefits for road car users and meeting our objective of net zero carbon by 2030. Formula One is currently enjoying immense growth and we are confident these regulations will build on that excitement of our 22 changes that have already produced. I want to thank all of the FIA management and technical staff involved in this process for their diligence and commitment in working together with all of our Formula One stakeholders to deliver over this. I also want to thank our WMSC members for their consideration and approval of these regulations. Now, we have been talking about the new 2026 power unit regulations forever. And as a reminder, the FIA Formula One's four key pillars of the 2026 framework for the new power unit regulations are the following, and I'm quoting the FIA here, maintaining the spectacle. So number one, the 2026 power unit frameworks Key pillars are, one, maintaining the spectacle. The 2026 power unit will have similar performance to the current designs, utilizing high-power, high-revving V6 internal combustion engines and avoiding excessive performance differentiation to allow for improved raceability. Number two, environmental sustainability. The 2026 power unit will include an increase in the deployment of electrical power to up to 50% and utilize a 100% sustainable fuel, both massive changes, Financial sustainability, financial regulations regarding the power units will reduce the overall cost for competitors while sustaining the cutting edge technological showcase that is at the core of Formula One. And then finally, and this is probably the most important one, quite frankly, making it attractive to new power unit manufacturers. The regulations are intended to make it possible and attractive for newcomers to join the sport at a competitive level right from 
the jump. Adam, you are in the UK, and, and to me, the UK is very much the the bastion, the home base of Formula One. How have the new Formula One engine regulations been received in the UK? What are people saying and what are your impressions of the first cut of these regulations? Well, I mean, first of all, it's good to see that they have agreed on a set of new regulations for the power units. And of course, you know, the previous ones have been in place for some time. You know, it was only a decade ago that they were sort of formally agreed for the turbo hybrid era. And I think the most important thing is that the FIA and F1 are going to be hoping that not only are these new engine regulations going to be dominated by one particular team from the get-go, as we saw in 2014 with Mercedes, for example, but they're going to be attractive for newcomers. And Porsche and Audi, you know, key members of the Volkswagen group that have been heavily involved in the discussions and negotiations, if you like, for these new regulation changes, um, to, you know, to appeal to them to sort of want to join the sport. That sort of plug-in-and-play uh, phrase has been thrown about a few times. And the general consensus at the moment is I feel like a lot of people are saying that I think we need to wait for more details to be published before we can make a definitive conclusion. And and an example of that is um, obviously the electrification from uh, the batteries in the most powerful MGUKs, which is the part that is actually being retained at the moment, where that's going to go up from 120 kilowatts to 350, almost three times the power. And the issue with that, and not to be too techy, because I'm not an engine expert by any stretch of the imagination, but from what I've learned and from what I've read, a lot of the recovery down the straights, not necessarily under braking or in the corners, down the straights, comes from the MGUH, which is now being discontinued and abandoned because this was such a complex part to master. Honda, for example, really struggled to get on top of this till you know they produced a championship winning engine or power unit, if you like, in 2021. And we saw how famously things were going wrong when they jumped into the sport a few years behind on development from everyone. And it was to the detriment of McLaren and even to a degree to... Um, Alpha Tauri and Red Bull when they started running those power units uh, some years afterwards. So Audi and Porsche, they don't want to jump into the sport and have to deal with those struggles. They want to be able to come straight in, have a power unit ready where they can get it together and compete for race wins, maybe championships if they want to. Porsche certainly have those aspirations with that new 50% stake partnership with Red Bull starting in 2026. Of course, they've got those lofty ambitions. And as you mentioned already, Audi looking at potentially Sauber slash Alfa Romeo as their way into the sport. So, I think that's been the main focus right now. I think a lot of us probably have the opinion where trying to attract newcomers into the sport is the way forward for F1. Now, of course, engine supplies, that's going to be a lot easier to do. And it might put some pressure on existing ones that may have dangled the carrot of potentially leaving F1 as a, as a means to get their own way in negotiations. Now that's not going to exist if they can just be easily replaced by others. So it's a bit of a mixed bag right now. I would say... Um, yeah, right now it seems to be more focused at attracting new uh, engine providers than retaining the old ones in the competition. But let's wait for more details to be published because, um, as I said, I'm not an expert on this. The only thing I do know is that I'm a little bit concerned as to uh, how efficient, uh, well, not how efficient, how uh, these engine regulations are going to work. They go live in 2026, which seems like it's an eternity away, but three years isn't 
in practice a lot of time for the current power unit suppliers to develop test bench and build reliable examples, right? That these engines need to be in the back of cars for winter testing in the beginning of 2026. So we're talking three and a half years ago, but or three and a half years away, but we're talking about incredibly sophisticated, complex Formula One engines. And people are saying, well, there's less complexity because you're taking out the MGUH, which is the tool that, or the mechanism that helps create electrification by capturing energy from exhaust gases. That is actually my favorite part, and we'll get in a minute to the reason why that's being taken out. But you also make a great point about the fact that the MGUK, which is the electrical component that generates electrification out of wasted energy from braking, that's now going to be expected to capture three times the amount of energy that it is today. Because what the FIA and what Formula One are saying now is, hey, going forward, half of the power that these cars generate will be electrical energy. And for the energy that's produced from the internal combustion engine, they're going to be using fully sustainable fuels. And I quote here from F1, thanks to intense research and testing from Formula One partner Aramco. So it sounds really, really great. I think there are still some very, very significant technical hurdles that these teams are going to need to overcome to be able to deliver reliable examples of these power units. And the other piece that I think the drivers are going to really have to adjust to is, and we're going to talk about this in a couple of days because F1 Techie is going to join us and we're going to do a really cool uh, 30-minute, 45-minute special episode just to break down what the 2026 power units are. And he's very technical in a way that I'm not, but the MGUH today has a very cool trick and it has this cool trick which helps to eliminate turbo lag and turbochargers are cool i've had a turbocharged i've had multiple turbocharged cool cars and they are incredibly cool because they help deliver a dollop of power by injecting compressed air into the engine. And of course, in collaboration or in conjunction with an injection of additional fuel, they can deliver this surge of power. But when you get on the throttle, there's this concept of turbo lag, which means that it takes a few moments for that turbo to spool up because the turbo is spooled up by the exhaust gases. The MGUH helps eliminate that because it uses electrification to keep that turbine spinning all the time. So when the driver gets on the throttle, that turbo Turbo power is available immediately, which is really useful when exiting a corner in the new world. There's going to be turbo lag because the MGUH isn't going to be there to keep that turbo turbine spinning all the time. So again, it's very cool. It's going to be presumably more cost efficient, and it's ultimately going to help attract new entries to the sport, which kind of takes us to the next story. And I'm going to pass this one over to you. But ultimately, the reason why we've been so invested in the 2026 power unit specifications is because we've been led to believe that Audi and Porsche, who are connected with F1, Porsche, of course, with Red Bull, Audi, of course, with Sauber, that they aren't going to commit or won't commit to the sport until the 2026 power unit regulations are confirmed. So we now have the regulations. We know what it's going to be. It's going to be a 1.6 liter V6 turbo with a big MGUK and a battery store. No more MGUH, which allegedly is what Audi and Porsche demanded. Do we now expect to see these two teams, these two big German companies finally enter the sport, Adam? Well, Porsche, definitely, because they've already bought a huge stake into Red Bull in the team. And and as already said, the plug-in and play method is certainly at the forefront of this uh, decision for Porsche. They obviously wanted to enter the sport 
with an organisation that was going to be competing for championships. I'm under no illusions that Red Bull are definitely going to be competing for world championships. They're one of the leading teams in the sport. They're currently leading both championships right now. It's a dream scenario for Porsche. And it's one as well, cost-wise, it's not going to cost them an arm and a leg. Um, pardon, you know, pardon the phrasing. And that's kind of been the epicentre of the decision-making for the Volkswagen Group members like Audi and Porsche, as we've already talked about, is how much is this going to cost them? And what is the ROI on this? What is the return on their investment? Ultimately, for them, it's going to be success and winning championships and winning races. And I think that's what we're seeing here. We are seeing regulations which are being tailored to these to attract new entries. Um, F1 has always had this at the core of its success throughout the sport. They've always wanted to be very attractive. Over the last decade or so, it's been very difficult to attract new teams. I mean, the last new team in the sport was Haas, and that was all the way back in, when was it, 2016? That they entered or something like that. And it's really been a struggle. Yeah, it's, it's really been a struggle for new teams to come into the sport. So... I think F1 was kind of hoping that perhaps Audi and Porsche would come into the sport as brand new entries rather than just an engine supplier. We know Audi are looking at potentially buying into an existing team. So it's not really had the desired effect that they were hoping for in the short term, but perhaps with more engine supplies and perhaps with Audi involved as well, um, whether they enter, I mean, they probably will buy into a team rather than enter their own team. It might be something that might attract other use, other companies in the future to invest in this sport. I mean, it's the pinnacle motorsport. All the big motorsport firms, all the big car companies want to be involved in Formula One, but obviously it's got to be cost effective for them. There's got to be a level of return. You're not going to throw in several hundreds of millions of pounds into Formula One if you're not going to get a return on that. So I think right now this is this has been really good news for those two entries. Audi, it looks like they're going to buy in, as I've already said a few times, it looks like they're going to buy into Sauber. That seems to be their avenue. And I know they were looking at Aston Martin and McLaren, but of course they've had some uh, some issues with trying to get that done for obvious reasons. So yeah, I, I think it's very much tailored towards getting these teams in. And, I f- and hopefully, you never know, it may produce something in the future, but right now... Um, I would say it's very likely we're going to have both of those uh, entries in Porsche, especially. And uh, how that will take shape with Red Bull in the future beyond 2026, we'll have to wait and see. Mark Hughes from the race.com has a terrific article that was published a couple of days ago. And the article says, Mark Hughes, F1's 2026 package feels tailor-made for Porsche. And he writes that Porsche had some very clear preconditions for entering F1, which have actually been met with the 2026 regs. And I quote from the race.com, the abandoned MGUH, which was a tricky technology to master, Honda's initial humiliation probably scaring manufacturers away. Of course, that was when they joined the sport back in 2015. The increased electrification from massively more powerful MGUK and battery to align with the automotive marketing push, more standardization of mechanical parts, so more standardized or listed components within the internal combustion engine itself, taking away uh, design liberties from the team saying, hey, here's what you have to design, build, or here's what you need to buy, but more flexibility in terms of what they can do with the electrical system. And of course, this is important to Porsche and Audi because there's this concept in Formula One of trickle-down technology. They want to be able to develop things at F1 that can trickle down into their road car. So having some flexibility there is really, really important. Renewable fuels, which is going to be delivered for 2026, and if it was delivered earlier, probably could have lengthened Sebastian Vettel's career, and a power unit 
cost cap, but with concessions for a new manufacturer cost and dyno time. So this, and this is something that I was really struggling to wrap my head around a couple of days ago. This is independent of the team cost cap. So think about the cost cap that all of the teams have to develop their car in Mercedes, Ferrari, Red Bull, Alpha Tauri, Williams. Here's the amount of money that you have to spend on your car. So if I am Red Bull, I'm going to spend, say, $50 million on my car. I'm going to spend $30 million buying power units from from, from uh, Honda, etc. In this case, that is a cost cap that applies not to the teams, but applies to the companies that supply the power units. So Mercedes power unit supply chain or supply division, Honda, etc., etc., they operate as independent companies. So there will now be a cost cap on the power unit suppliers in the development of their engines. So this will hopefully limit what we saw in 2014. So of course, Mercedes dominance in 2014, 2015, 2016 is they just spent exponentially more developing their hybrid power unit in 2012 and 2013 as any other team in the sport. And it took the rest of the teams five or six years to catch up by having a really strict cost cap on the development of the new power unit. It's hoped to level the playing field. But what Porsche and Audi have demanded here is that, hey, as we are an entirely new engine provider, we want some concessions. And those concessions will be, we can spend a little bit more money than established companies like Renault and Ferrari and Mercedes. But furthermore, we get more time on the dyno. And the dyno is where they basically strap that power unit to a mechanism that measures power and the delivery of said power. So some really interesting stuff here. But you also touch on a couple of other really good points, which is Formula One and and Liberty especially have done such a great job of making the sport attractive to newcomers. And we saw Toyota 15 years ago, 16 years ago, they entered the sport. They spent unimaginable sums of money trying to build Formula One infrastructure and they flamed out, had zero success and they exited at the cusp of the global recession. Honda as well, they exited their works team. BMW, they had a partnership with Sauber, they exited. So you have this track record of big companies coming in and simply not being able to compete despite spending huge sums of money. And I think clearly what Liberty is saying is we want to make the sport attractive for manufacturers. We want manufacturers to come and we can make it attractive by simplifying the formula of the cars and the engines, making the engines road relevant from a marketing perspective, but also just making the the cost certainty that much more accessible to all of these teams. So very, very cool. And kind of building on this, uh, AMUS, of course, the really great German publication, uh, published an article a couple of days ago indicating that at least one more car manufacturer could sign up for Formula One as soon as this fall. So we all know that Porsche and Audi have been sniffing around because they've been talking about it. But AMUS in a recent article indicated that they expect that at least one more automotive manufacturer could sign up for 2026, either from the US or Korea. Any thoughts on that? Because that's a very juicy tidbit that they put at the end of a very long, detailed article about the new power unit regulations. Yeah, I mean, I'm intrigued by the possible Korean entry. Um, I, I don't really know too much about that, unfortunately. Um, but it's quite intriguing that from that part of the world, of course, we had races in in South Korea not too long ago. Um, it was a really good track, actually. I'm surprised F1 didn't decide to go back. I actually quite missed that one. But um it would be quite interesting, you know, from a technology perspective, lots of famous brands, like, for example, not to sort of name drop, like Samsung, for example, 
You know, how many people use Samsung phones or Samsung equipment and stuff like that? I think they'd be quite handy at being able to make some good Formula One power units and stuff like that. Um, so I'm, I'm sure they'd have no trouble with that. Um, and then, of course, you know, um, we've seen for a while now that Andretti, Mario Andretti, has been trying to get um, get a team into the sport. And we've seen some pitfalls and stuff with the negotiations. And, of course, a huge stumbling block has been compensating the existing teams that old 200 million uh dollar uh payment that they need to make to all the teams to sort of buy their way in and of course to compensate those teams for losing out on future revenue streams that an 11th team would take away from them so you know there's going to be a lot of interest especially as well with the with the f1 market booming in the us right now of course there's going to be interest from other teams how feasible that is i don't know we've had rumors about Pantera, if people have heard of them, there might be one that not many people have heard of in the past, but that was a name that was being branded around. I think they were Spanish-based, uh, if I'm not mistaken. They were trying to get into the sport, although that was more hyperbole, if you like, than anything else. I don't really think that kind of ma- would manifest into anything serious. We never really saw any serious intent from them. It was always just, oh yeah, we've got ambitions, we want to do this, we're working on this, we've got a car ready, let's do this, and it never really materialised into anything. So the interest of getting new teams into the sport has always been ever present. How real that is right now and the likelihood of that, I'm not so sure because the current 10 teams that exist in the sport really want to protect their revenue. And with the revenue going up and up and up because the cost cap has obviously allowed them to make savings and, you know, the the increase in the market, particularly in the US and other places as well, where they're looking to go to new circuits. And of course, the Chinese market still to be tapped into with Zhou Guan Yu in the sport. If he stays around, they might have more Chinese races, which of course will provide investment opportunities there. There's a lot going on for these current teams to stick around and really get a much bigger piece of the pie, if you like. And I don't really see them wanting to sort of relinquish that for any new entries. So that's kind of where the struggle is right now. I would love to have more teams on the grid. F1 needs more teams on the grid. The amount of good drivers that miss out on opportunities because there isn't enough seats available is really killing the sport to a degree. And it's really heavily reliant to the point where those 10 teams that are in right now, they're kind of not contracted in to stay there. Of course, they will sign up for that with the Concord Agreement, but it almost feels like on both sides, they're kind of imprisoning each other to the point where we need both parties to stick around in order for F1 to thrive. So we really need new entries to come in to try and liven the sport up. And also not just new entries to make up spaces on the grid, because we've seen that in the past. You know, Super Guri, for example, Caterham, when they came back, they just filled a slot and then they disappeared in a few years or were bought out by someone else. So we really need new teams in the sport. I hope that these rumours and these stories have some level of life in them and that they have some momentum that they might turn into something real um all i would say at this point in time to summarize the big long monologue really that i've just come out with on this is let's wait and see i think andretti may come back with something a bit more serious but let's just wait and see at the moment i wouldn't get excited too yet too much too soon there is this increased anxiety and and honestly even i think a little bit of anger amongst formula one fans in the u.s about stefano domenicoli and formula one's lack of desire to bring uh, 
the Andretti group onto the Formula One grid. And I'll be very honest, I'm one of those that is not particularly eager to see it. And that's certainly not a dig at at U.S. auto motorsports in any way whatsoever. But I also believe that Stefano Domenicali and the rest of the Formula One brass know more than we know. And I think that they know that there's probably a U.S. manufacturer or possibly a Korean manufacturer or possibly a Chinese manufacturer that's looking at possibly entering the sport. And I think ultimately the way that the way that Stefano Domenicali and the Formula One brass have to look at this is we have possibly two grid slots left. That's it. Like it's very unlikely and it's not impossible, but it's unlikely or impossible, at least with the current Concord agreement, that we are going to see 13 teams on the grid. So you look at this, we have this kind of artificial, but very concrete cap of 12 teams in the sport. So you have the room for two more teams. And I think if I'm Formula One, I want to be very cl- I want to be very careful with who I slot teams into. I want to make sure that if I'm going to admit a new team to Formula 1, they need to bring maximum value to the sport. And and I get it that Andretti's an established brand in the US and people have heard of them and of course there's a rich racing history associated with that family. But I think if I'm Formula 1, I'm like, look, if I have Hyundai a multi-billion dollar company that has road car sales in every country on the planet and they want to enter the sport, that's far more valuable to me from a financial perspective than Andretti Motorsport because they have the capital to stand up a team very quickly and there are marketing linkages globally. And likewise, if Ford or Chevy are interested in entering the sport, that is not something that I can turn down. So I don't think Formula One's in a hurry to fill that 11th and that 12th grid spot because I think for the first time in a very long time, they have big time players looking to enter the sport. And like we talked about a couple of minutes ago, the whole reason they did the cost cap and the whole reason that they did the new 2026 power unit uh, regulations is to make it more attractive for manufacturers to enter the sport. And I think Andretti had an opportunity last year and they weren't able to bring together enough capital to buy Sauber. And of course, I think there are some shenanigans happening there as well on the on the Sauber side. But at the same time, in 2016, Formula One couldn't beg people to sign up. Haas got under the grid for nothing because they desperately needed to fill grid spots and there was opportunities in the past, but now Formula One exists in a very different world. That sound in the background can mean only one thing, that it's time for MotoGP Corner, and it's been a long time. But my good friend Randy sent me a really interesting story a couple of days ago, and in it, it describes that Dorna, the governing body or the organization that owns and promotes MotoGP, has decided that they're going to incorporate sprint races into the calendar next year. Now, as I understand it, and I could be wrong, they're going to have sprint races at every single race and they're going to make time for this because they're going to do away with the practice session they're going to do away with the 20 minute warm-up on the sunday they aren't going to change tire allocation but what i find really interesting about this is the points that will be available during the sprint qualifying session will be fairly significant they will equal half of what is available during the grand prix on the sunday so in a sprint qualifying weekend, which I guess will be every race weekend, there are a ton of points available. But I think the single most important takeaway for me when we talk about sprint qualifying and MotoGP is the sprint race will not dictate the grid for the Grand Prix on the Sunday. Rather, and this is what Formula One needs to do in my humble opinion, qualifying will set the grid for the sprint race 
and it will set the grid for the Grand Prix. So in essence, every race weekend you get qualifying, it's just as meaningful as it ever has been. In fact, in the context of MotoGP, it's significantly more important because it's gonna set the grid for two races. Sprint qualifying is significantly more valuable because there's significantly more points proportionately relative to Formula One, significantly more points available. It also just opens up the championship a little bit more and injects some excitement. And the reason, of course, this is so important is MotoGP, in a lot of countries is currently struggling significantly with fan interest. Valentino Rossi, of course, he departed the sport. He was the transcendent superstar that carried the sport MotoGP racing in the motorcycle world for the last two decades. In fact, recently we saw news reports indicating that the MotoGP event in England in Silverstone drew just 40,000 people on race day for the race Sunday. Now that is in stark comparison to the last time I was there in 2016 when there were almost 100,000 people there on Sunday for the race. So MotoGP, like Formula One, looking for ways to enhance and make the product more accessible and more compelling. But I think MotoGP has a significant upheld battle because I think the biggest gap, the biggest opportunity is making sure that they've got really transcendent stars on those bikes that they can market and that they can promote globally. We're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, we're going to talk a little bit about Lando Norris, who says the security of his three-year deal with McLaren has brought him significant peace of mind. We'll hear about that on the flip side. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. Welcome back to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. My name is Mark Hamilton, and joining me once again, my new bestie from the UK, Mr. Adam Burns. We've been breaking down all of the latest news in the world of Formula One. And the next story is about British driver, McLaren driver, Lando Norris. Lando says, and of course, Lando is a driver that has been outspoken about the mental health concerns of competing and being a part of the Formula One circus. Lando says that having a long-term deal, and this is from motorsport.com, quote unquote, definitely takes the pressure off by ensuring he is quote unquote, not overthinking his future. He says, it's not that everything isn't good now, but a new wind tunnel and certain other projects we have with the team, which are coming along and which will hopefully give us better performance by 2024, 2025. And I also look forward to those times. Nor said in an interview with motorsport.com ahead of the summer break, we might not just go out and win, but I want to convince myself that I'll definitely help us move in the right direction. There are so many good things that we're doing as a team and that I see us doing better than some of the 
top teams at times. It's just that sometimes you don't have the car that can show that, if that makes sense. I'm happy. I also feel that I made a good decision for being here for the long term. I'm enjoying it, which for me is the most important thing. Every year, I'm still excited to see what the future holds because I'm almost always more and more optimistic of where we, the team, can end up in a few years. So my friend, a couple of questions for you. One, I think in a lot of ways, Lando's been a trailblazer for openly discussing mental health in the sport of Formula One, which unquestionably is an absolute pressure cooker. We see that all the time, and we're seeing that currently with his teammate, Daniel Ricciardo, and and the situation, the experience that he's currently going through. But the other question that I wanted to kick over to you is, Lando Norris is popular in North America. I would argue that in Canada, he's probably more popular than Lance Stroll and, and a fellow Canadian, Nicholas Latifi. But from your perspective, talk a little bit about how popular he is in the UK, his home country. Lando Norris, I mean, there's so, there's so much to say about him that's really, really positive right now. I mean, he's a young lad who's, you know, is a phenomenal Grand Prix driver. You know, he's he's won a lot of um, followers in Formula One. I mean, last season we had at the Austrian Grand Prix, we had Sir Lewis Hamilton calling him a really good driver or a great driver when they were having a great battle together. And he's a guy that's had such an, a, a stellar junior career. You know, he's been thrusted into a big team like McLaren, was never intended to be the star driver or the man to bring the team forward. And it's a position that since Carlos Sainz moved on to Ferrari and even due respect to that, he was pretty close to him then. He's really ascended into this marquee level of Formula One driver that only few others currently on the grid right now can actually share. And for me, I think Lando represents so much more than just being a great driver in F1. You know, he's a fun person to be around. He's got that youthful exuberance around him that seems to excite people and always seems to bring so much positivity around him, as you mentioned already. He's a well outspoken person on mental health issues. Of course, a lot of support for the Mind Charity. Um, you know, it's worn a few special crash helmets to sort of remind people about how important preserving your mental health is and doing what he can, as as I've already mentioned, as a marquee sports person to sort of help those causes going forward. And there's a bright future for him in Formula One in British motorsport. I mean, a lot of the plaudits and a lot of the expectation was originally on George Russell to succeed from Lewis Hamilton when Lewis decides to call it a day, whenever that may be. But Lando Norris has really ascended to the point now where, at the very, very least, he's in that conversation as well. And the future of British motorsport, of British Formula One, is in very safe hands with those two in particular. And I'm very excited to see what Lando Norris can do um, when he's in a much more competitive car. I mean, all due respect to McLaren, they have been plagued by the lack of infrastructure quality compared to some of their rivals, which explains why they've not been, they've not made that jump forward like Ferrari has to the front of the field. I think a lot of us expected that to happen anyway. So now that they've got those things in place a little bit more, they're going to enjoy that a bit better. I think it might be till 2024 where we see McLaren really produce something with the updated equipment that they have that could potentially challenge the rivals ahead of them. And when that does happen, Lando should still be embedded in that car. He's got, I think only Max Verstappen has a longer contract than him at the moment at the time of recording. So, you know, all that aside, there is plenty to be positive about with Lando Norris. And I'm really excited to see what he can do. And, you know, we could be talking about this in a few years time. Could Lando be a world champion? Absolutely. Will that be a McLaren? 
Not so sure at this point in time, but you know what? If he's at McLaren or he's at Mercedes or Red Bull or Ferrari, wherever he decides to be in a few years' time, I have absolutely no doubt that we are talking about a guy that could potentially be the future of Formula One. I very much very much agree with everything that you're saying. Lando Norris, by the way, you're correct, has the second longest term in Formula One. It's believed that he's under contract through 2025. Max Verstappen is under contract through 2028. And it's believed that his annual income from Formula One racing for the team is between 20 and $30 million per season. So he's also one of the best paid drivers. And, and I, I think you're right as well that we saw some really great signs of performance from this team in recent years. Of course, the regulations reset the field this year, but it was only two years ago that the Mercedes, the Mercedes, the McLaren team were were struggling through some massive financial difficulties, that it was only 2020 that they had to sell the McLaren the McLaren Technology Center and and lease it back from the new owners. It was only 2020 when they had to accept hundreds of millions of dollars in aid and funding from the Bahraini Sovereign Wealth Fund, that this is a team that still has some institutional infrastructure, internal work to do to rebuild this organization. And I think to have expected them to be competing for a championship this year was probably unfair. But I think you're right that this is a team that should be significantly more competitive come 2024 and 2025. And it will be very fascinating to see what they ultimately decide to do from a power unit perspective for 2026. Because while they're partnered right now with Mercedes and that relationship seems good, I think it probably kills the internal leadership at that team that they have to be a power unit customer team and that they aren't a works team with somebody else or aren't capable of building their own power unit. And maybe that changes because we've heard whispers from Aston Martin that they themselves are going to look at developing their own power unit for 2026 since the formula is going to be simplified. They don't love being a partner or a customer team of Mercedes, even though Mercedes owns a stake in the road car division and the Formula One team. But I think McLaren especially is probably going to look for the opportunity to partner with somebody or become somebody's works team, much like they were with Mercedes back in until uh, Mercedes spun off Braun and started their own works team. My friend, the next story here, and this is published from, I think this was planetf1.com, they are reporting that six people are to appear in British court after the British Grand Prix track invasion that occurred during lap one just a few months ago. Maybe I'll kick it over to you. Can you recap what had happened here and why people are going to be appearing in front of British court? Well, it was all at the start of the British Grand Prix where, you know, prior to this, we had seen a few people, I think from the same organization or same group, that had um, invaded a few uh, football or soccer pitches in this case. And that's the only time you're ever going to hear me call it that. Um where they they sort of tied themselves to some of the goalposts and interrupted those matches uh, so that, you know, they can try and raise awareness and fight for climate change. Now, look, of course, I'm not going to deny I am a massive fan of supporting action to tackle climate change. I think it's the biggest problem facing this planet in a long time. And it's something that we all collectively need to get together and do better on to try and resolve this issue. But you know, that there's certain methods that you can justify saying, OK, fair enough, it's a bit of a disruption. You want a global audience. This is how you go about it. Doing what these people did at the British Grand Prix, whilst I understand the need, they felt the need to do what they did, it's incredibly stupid and incredibly dangerous. And for those of you that didn't see, at the start of the race, uh, all the cars were coming to the grid 
And just as the lights went out, further along the circuit, around about where Cops Corner was, some of the people there were literally, I think think about six people, as you mentioned, Mark, they invaded the circuit, they got over the barriers and sat down on the circuit whilst we were about to go live racing. And the only reason, in my opinion, why there wasn't an absolute catastrophe or a horrible accident on live television is because of the lap one crash with uh, Zhou Guan Yu flying over into the barriers at turn one, which of course brought the red flag out, slowed all the cars down to the point where we didn't have a um, Max Verstappen or Charles Leclerc approaching one of them at 200 miles an hour. And look, you don't have to be an expert to know what would have happened, but I think some of us may have watched Final Destination. You can get a rough idea of where this was going. So incredibly dangerous. And as I said, I want to put this out there. I absolutely support the cause in terms of what they want to achieve. They want more action on climate change. They want to deal with that. The methods, however, absolutely not. There has to be a better way to get the attention of millions and not put your life at risk. I mean, not to go too sidetracked, um, for, for anyone who studied history in the UK about the, the right for women's vote back in the 1900s, uh, sorry, the earlier 20th century, um, Emily Davis one of the suffragettes, obviously, you know, invading the Epsom Derby and was knocked down by the King's horse, which obviously took her life, all to support the right for women's vote. Now, I'm not suggesting that um, it wasn't effective because, of course, what we know now, women have equality in some regards. And, and, you know, that's a good thing, of course. But, um, you know, doing similar methods in on a Formula One circuit and risking your life in that manner it's not going to achieve anything. If, if anything, all it's going to do is make, end up, you know, planning your own funeral, um, which nobody wants. And, you know, it's going to leave people devastated, not to mention the poor F1 driver that ends up running you over when they don't know you're on circuit. So yeah, absolutely crazy stuff. And of course it's now leading to them going to court, which I think it's, there's not much more I can really say. I mean, anyone that saw it will understand how crazy that that was, but you know, there's got to be a better way to protest for climate uh, and, you know, to tackle climate change than jumping and invading a Formula One circuit in the middle of a race. You make a great point that we were moments, seconds away from what could have been an absolute catastrophe. And it would have been that the drivers would have had to apply an emergency braking situation, which would very likely have uh, resulted in a number of cars being collected because, of course, in the first lap, all the cars are tightly packed together, um, and that could have been incredibly chaotic and dangerous to the drivers, or the fact that they wouldn't have been able to brake in time and could potentially have taken the life of one or more of the protesters. And I think what's really scary about this, the only reason that catastrophe didn't happen is because of the incident on lap one, which slowed the flat, the slowed the pack and brought out the, the yellow flags. And and it's it's probably not different than we're seeing in other parts of the world, but here in BC, people, British Columbia, Vancouver, people are very sensitive to climate change, and we are experiencing climate change very, very, very realistically. The summers here are longer, hotter. We, uh, we're haunted by forest fires for months of the season. The city's often cast in a red or yellow glow for months at a time because of forest fires. Like We know what's happening. But at the same time, there are people here that protest by shutting down major arterial highways and bridges. And, and it's dangerous and it's chaotic. And the way they do it ultimately damages the cause. It brings a negative light and a negative perception to the cause as opposed to bringing bringing a positive focus to their their message and and their concern. So I very much agree with you that hey we we all agree that climate change is an incredibly critical 
a critical thing to talk about. I think it's great that Formula One, especially with the 2026 power units, are continuing to acknowledge that we all need to do more and we all need to shift and we need to adjust. But taking action such as, such as camping on a track at the beginning of a Grand Prix is absolutely unacceptable. And and hopefully the courts uh, makes a ruling that, that recognizes just how dangerous this is and makes it clear to people that might think about doing this in the future that, hey, there will be serious ramifications or consequences from a, a legal perspective if they do so. My friend, the next story, and I'm not, I'm not necessarily the hugest British football fan. I am an Arsenal fan. I've, yes. I've been to the Emirates. That's the, that's the team uh. that is kind of institutionally embedded into the DNA of our, of our family. Uh, but Mark Daly is actually a huge Manchester United fan. And of course, he's not here to speak to this. But PlanetF1.com is reporting that the Mercedes Formula One team co-owner, Jim Ratcliffe, is interested in buying parts or all of Manchester United. My friend, you're obviously much closer to British football and the Premier League than I am. And also maybe the calamity that is Manchester United so far this season. Maybe speak a little bit about the struggles that they've had this year, the frustration between their fans and their current ownership, the Glazer Group, um, and the potential for a co-owner of the Mercedes team to buy an interest in Manchester United. Well, first things first, Mark, I've got to say, I'm so glad to hear that, like myself, you're a big Arsenal fan. And of course, at the time of recording, Arsenal just beat Bournemouth 3-0 in the Premier League and we're now top of the league. So it's been a good start. It's it's good times right now. At least I can enjoy football a bit more than Formula One being a Ferrari fan right now. It's not really, but I suppose there are similar parallels going on between what's happening at Manchester United and Ferrari. So perhaps your your friend Mark Daly probably might sympathise in that regard when he watches Ferrari for our way win after win after win for a plethora of reasons at the moment. But um, when it comes to Manchester United, they are one of the biggest clubs in world football. And, you know, they have such a rich heritage and history in the Premier League. They're the most successful team in the Premier League. They've been the most successful team over the last few decades. A lot of people look at them as the number one brand uh, in football in, in England and in Europe. You know, obviously, Real Madrid may have an argument or two about that in Liverpool, too, with all due respect. But they are as elite as they come. You can draw similar comparisons in other sports that you guys might follow listening in, in in North America or wherever you listen around the world. But Manchester United are as big as they come. And recently, well, say recently, I said that over the last decade, the last Premier League title I think they won was in 2013 or something like that. Um, you know, so it's a long time for a team like them to have not won uh, the, the English League title or been a major threat in Europe. They've really declined quite rapidly in recent years. And... The Glazers have been at the epicenter of this. Um, for those of you that don't know, when the Glazers bought into Manchester United and bought the club um, over a decade ago, they borrowed £600 million to actually make that purchase. And then that debt was landed onto the club when they moved it onto the US Stock Exchange. And this is something that, you, should, you know, it, they would never get away with doing. Um, in England if they were allowed to do this now. Like new owners coming in, they'd never be allowed to do that. And of course, there are other franchises in in England like uh, Arsenal, of course, as you and I both know, Mark, obviously owned by the KSC franchise led by Stan Kroenke. And of course, fortunately right now, that seems to be bearing some fruit. I know we had some friction with our owners quite recently over what their intentions were in the club, but the Glazers are a completely different story altogether. I'm not going to go into too many details, but Manchester United fans are literally... They're as frustrated as they can be about this. They want a sale. They want the Glazers out. So the story about Sir Jim Ratcliffe, which I have heard about, um, obviously the UK's richest man, obviously owns a big part of Mercedes. 
that would be a breath of fresh air to them. How realistic that is right now, I'm not sure. I wouldn't say it was very likely right now. I know Sir Jim had been looking at purchasing Chelsea Football Club, another team in London, when they were looking for new owners. And and Sir Lewis Hamilton was actually going to join in as part of that consortium and Serena Williams as well. They were going to, um, I think, commit £10 million each as part of that potential sale. Obviously, that didn't happen. I think Ted Bowley ended up buying that club instead. So Sir Jim is looking for another club to look into. And Manchester United would be a very good one. So it certainly is quite interesting to see how that would all go down. I know this is an F1 podcast as well, but um, I think what's going to happen with the Glazers is I think they're looking to buy a lot of players. I've seen some transfers go through for United and um, they're trying to raise the value of the club on the stock exchange. You know, when new signings come in, it obviously raises the value of the club on the US stock exchange. Yeah, of course, when you add debt to that, it raises the overall to- overall equity value of the club. So they want to try and make a, a big sale. So we'll have to wait and see. But uh, yeah, it's quite interesting that someone tied with Mercedes might have connections to Manchester. And of course, Toto Wolff also mentioned quite recently that he was a uh, watching and studying Manchester United to try and understand how a big entity like that can succeed and also how they can decline and obviously how to try to bring that back up. I mean, he did an incredible job bringing Mercedes and making them what they are today. I think he'd have one hell of a job to try and do the same with Manchester United with all due respect. So uh, hopefully for Toto, for his own mental sanity, stick to Formula One. I don't think you need to uh, put that burden on you right now or if you want to come at Arsenal more than welcome born winners (laughs) we need more of that success and not that we do this very often but a quick update on the Premier League table right now Arsenal sits at top followed by Tottenham Man City Fulham Brentford Newcastle Leeds Chelsea Brighton Crystal Palace Nottingham Palace or Nottingham Forest Southampton Aston Villa Bournemouth Liverpool Everton the Wolves Leicester City West Ham and then on the verge and again it's early but on the verge of relegation Manchester United having lost their last two matches. Incredible. And I think that would be a breath of fresh air for that team. Because like you said, there has been nothing but friction between the Glazer group and the fans of that organization since the day that ownership group was announced. My friend, the next story we've got lined up here is about Stoffel Van Dorn. And Stoffel doesn't come up too often. Of course, he raced for the McLaren team in 2017-2018 when they were still partnered with the the, the Honda team. Uh, it was very much a dark era for that team. Honda had re-entered the sport in 2015. They, they really struggled, especially to get their heads wrapped around the MGUH. They had significant reliability issues. He came into the team during a period when Fernando Alonso was still there. And of course, there was significant friction. As there always seems to be between Fernando and the McLaren team, although, of course, nothing like 2007. But Stoffel Van Dorn, congratulations, has been crowned the new Formula E world champion. So congratulations to him. But uh, PlanetF1.com reports that despite maybe an underlying desire or interest in returning to Formula One, that likelihood is possibly very very low. I remember, and I've shared this story a couple times in the past, but I remember being at the Williams factory in 2016. And at the time, of course, their driver lineup was Valtteri Bottas and uh, Felipe Massa. And everyone knew at that point that Felipe Massa was on his way out. He was going to retire. So there was a ton of speculation in the sport about who was going to replace him. And I was championing for Lance Stroll. But when I was at the factory, I, I still recall how much pent-up demand and interest there was in Stoffel Van Dorn that it was 
undeniably, either it was a smoke screen because they all knew that Lance Stroll was coming with his dad's money. It was either a smoke screen or it was because they were genuinely interested. But I remember at the time that overwhelmingly the desire at Williams was that they wanted to bring in Stoffel Van Dorn for 2017. Of course, that didn't happen. Williams signed Lance Stroll for 2017 as a kind of reigning Formula 3 champion. And of course, the rest is history there. But Stoffel Van Dorn ultimately went to McLaren. He had a couple of years flying largely under the radar with a really poor performing team, spent the last couple of years in Formula E, is now a Formula E world champion. But uh, from your perspective, any hope, any chance in him ever making a return to Formula One, or has his chance come and, and gone, especially with the huge number of talented young drivers that seem to be circulating around the periphery of the sport? Sadly, I don't think it's likely that we're going to see Stoffel van Dorn in Formula One again. And and it's a real shame because, as you mentioned already, Stoffel, you know, he had his time at McLaren in 2017-18. Of course, he deputised in 2016 at the Bahrain Grand Prix when Alonso had that accident at Melbourne. And I think he scored a championship point in, in, in that race. I think it was the first point McLaren had scored in quite a while. So the talent was there. And this is a guy that had incredible potential. It was the best thing to come out of Belgium since chocolate and you know again pardoning that pun but uh, you know it was there was a lot of buzz around him and you know unfortunately it was just one of those those things where a driver with such a decorated junior career I think more decorated than any other driver that we've seen um it just didn't work out right just wrong place wrong time for him. I don't know if it have, if he'd have gone to Williams instead of Lance Stroll, if that would have made things better, because, you know, that team was really struggling. And of course, you really need the, f- what kept Lance around was that financial backing, which of course allowed him to move on to other things. So for Stoffel, yeah, just wrong place, wrong time for him. There are so many other drivers right now that I think are more likely to be in a seat in uh, Formula One next season. Most notably, he's, he's a Mercedes Formula E teammate, Nick DeVries, he has obviously done a few outings with Williams. Of course, he partook uh, for the Mercedes team in the French Grand Prix during free practice, driving Sir Lewis Hamilton's car. Did a relatively good job in that car, it must be said. And he's had some outings for Williams as well. So I I just can't see that happening, unfortunately. I really like Stoffel. I'm, I'm glad to see he's found some success in other series. Um, be interesting to see where he goes from here because, of course, Mercedes are now disbanding from Formula E. They've gone there. They saw, they conquered for two years, and now they've left. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, I'll be interested to see where he goes, but I, I can't see Formula One being on his horizon anytime soon, unfortunately. It's a real shame because he was a really good talent. It just reinforces the fact that there are more Formula One caliber drivers than there are Formula One seats at this time. To recap his career, he finished second in the GP2 Championship in 2014. He won the GP2 Championship in 2015. He spent the 2016 season in the Super Formula Championship in Japan. In 2016, you're right, and I've completely forgotten about that, in Australia, the season opening race, Fernando Alonso had that huge, huge crash. He was able to walk away from it, but he sat out Bahrain, which was the subsequent race. Stefan Van Dorn sat in for him, scored a point finish, finished 10th. 2017, he had three points finishes racing in that Honda-powered McLaren. And then his final season in Formula One, he had four points finishes, including a ninth in Australia, an eighth in Bahrain, a ninth in Azerbaijan, and an eighth place finish in Mexico. That, of course, was the first year of that short-lived relationship between McLaren and Renault after the Honda relationship had completely deteriorated. And since then, he's primarily been in Formula E, finished 16th and 18th, 19th, finished 2nd and 19th 
19-20, finished ninth in 2021, and of course, he's now the Formula E World Championship after having helped Mercedes win a couple of Constructors titles in that championship. My friend, let's take one more quick commercial break, and when we come back, I want to talk to you a little bit about the Formula One World Championship calendar for 2023, the fact that we're going to see some exciting new races come, but we're also going to see the exit of a couple of very important, at least to me, important tracks, and the fact that we don't have a German race on the calendar still, despite the fact that we could be onboarding two more German manufacturers into the championship. So folks, we're going to take one more quick break, pay some of those proverbial bills, but we'll see you on the flip side. Welcome back to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. My name is Mark Hamilton, and joining me today, my new bestie from the UK, Adam Burns, from the DNF F1 podcast. We've had a really great conversation talking about all the latest news from the world of Formula One. The next story that I want to talk about is this, and this was a story that was published by PlanetF1.com, and it's titled... Is Formula One in danger of quote unquote selling its soul through calendar changes? And the inference here is that going into 2023, we fully expect to have a 24 race calendar. Currently, we have 22 races contractually locked into the calendar. We expect that there will be two more added. We expect China to return for the first time since 2019. Of course, China is an incredibly important market for Formula One. And we also expect that Kayalami is going to join the calendar with an announcement that could come as soon as this fall. That would mean we would have 24 races contractually locked into the 24 2023 calendar, which is also the maximum allowed under the 2020 Concord Agreement. My friend, there are two noticeable absences. One is Paul Ricard in the French Grand Prix does not have a spot on the 2023 calendar, and neither does Spa. The Belgian Grand Prix is expected to be dropped in 2023. And furthermore, the German Grand Prix, which of course hasn't been on the calendar in a couple of years, is not going to be on the calendar either. So all of a sudden, three races in countries that have very much been the backbone of the financial support of this sport and the championship for many, many decades won't be there. We won't have a race in France. We won't have a race in Belgium. And we will not have a race in Germany in 2020. 23, as we welcome, of course, potentially Kailami, welcome China back, welcome to Qatar under the calendar as a full-time championship race, and welcome Las Vegas for the first time in November. My friend, what are your thoughts? We're losing potentially a a stalwart, a hallmark of the Formula One World Championship in Spa. Yeah, I mean, it would be a real shame if Spa was not included in the calendar. I mean, it was the first Grand Prix that I ever attended live um, on my 10th birthday, so I have really fond memories of that. And I think for a lot of people, it's it's up there as one of their all-time favorite circuits. It, it is for me. It certainly is one of my favorite as well. There's a great, there's a perfect blend of straights, corner challenges, of course, that Camel Straight, O'Rouge and Radion, um, La Source. You know, I, I could go on for days uh, about so many great things about the Belgian Grand Prix. And of course, let's not forget that... Max Verstappen, the world champion right now, whilst obviously, you know, is, is very much resonates as Dutch, he was originally born in Belgium. 
um, and he has a lot of support in Belgium. And of course, it's a Grand Prix that I'm sure he would love to have on the calendar on a more regular basis. But of course, as it stands right now, as you've already mentioned, we've got a maximum of 24 races we can have on the calendar owing to the new Concord agreement that we have running for a few years um, in the future, of course. And... You know, there's been rumours about whether Monaco was still going to be on the calendar and what that part that was going to play in F1, which for some people may seem crazy, you know, and some people may think, oh, glad, I'm finally, you know, happy that they're going to not give that race that sort of, um, how would you like, that sort of starred position where it's untouchable, even though it's just a regular street race for some people. I mean, I love Monaco, but obviously that's more for what it represents rather than actually what it delivers. Um, But it's crazy to think that certain races like Belgium are now seriously at risk of being on the, of not being on the Canada. And of course you mentioned, obviously there's a Chinese race we're expecting to have next season. They want to try and get more Chinese races because um, there's a market to tap into there. We're going to have free us Grand Prix in 2023, which for the record, I've got no problem with because if you compare the, the North American, even the South American by contrast and Central America, all of it combined, you haven't really got that many races there compared to Europe. And considering the land mass of people and the the popularity of the sport growing in the Americas, you kind of want to cash in on that. You don't want to gatekeep in Europe. Like Europe still has the largest number of races on the calendar. Um, so, you know, we have to take that into context. There will be scenarios where some races will sort of rotate. So they'll be on one calendar one year. They'll be off to another one. We had that with... Um, we used to have that with the German Grand Prix between um, sort of the Nordschleife Nürburgring, um, the racetrack version, not the full one, obviously. Uh, we've not had that one on the Canada since the 80s, but um, used to rotate between that and Hockenheim. And of course, Hockenheim was a circuit that I think a lot of people really enjoyed. Um, and, and the German audience is one of the largest viewing audiences in Formula One. It used to be the number one viewing audiences when it was on free-to-air television. Um, but of course, there's been certain factors as to why that's not the case anymore. And for obvious reasons, F1 doesn't feel there's much of a niche in Germany right now to sort of exploit from a market gain or revenue chasing gain, if you like. So from a pure fan's perspective, it would be a real shame for the Belgian Grand Prix to not be on the calendar. I know they've made some changes, but they've been more suited to the MotoGP changes. You know, the changes they've made at the runoff area, Oruj and Radion, um, to try and make it safer. Of course, you know, Formula One, it's, it's paramount. It needs to be safer. I mean, it, it wasn't long ago that we lost Antoine Hubert um, owing to a fatal crash in, in a race in the F2 series at Belgium. So, of course, changes needed to be made for the better to improve safety for drivers. But I don't really feel like that's a factor in sort of the decision to whether or not to include it on the Canada going forward. So I hope there is going to be room for it going forward. It's certainly not the first time the Belgian Grand Prix has been removed from the calendar, but with all due respect to Paul Ricard and a few other circuits, it just has that something about it that you just can't really get. And if F1 are trying to chase that revenue and trying to chase markets in other areas, I understand that. But you have to remember what made people fall in love with Formula One. And there are certain circuits like Spa, for example, that are a part of that um, and eccentric to the love and fanfare that Formula One has. So there needs to be a balance. I don't think you can gatekeep and say, no, we have to keep it there and ignore these new races because Kyle Army, people want people want representation in Africa for Formula One. Kyle Army is a great place to have that. I've been canvassing that for a long time and I'm really happy to hear that that's going to go on. Of course, you know, we've got the Middle East regions have had an expansion in Bahrain, for example. So obviously Saudi and Jeddah, Qatar, we had Doha last year, which stepped in. And that's going to have a race next season as a regular fixture. So, and of course, Abu Dhabi, no less than Singapore, you know, some great new additions to the Canada. So 
That's what F1 is all about. I don't think it's selling its soul. I just think right now where it's appropriate, it is chasing new opportunities. I do believe though, from the perspective of people working in Formula One, whether it be team personnel or crew staff that have to travel all over the world and for the environment as well, logistically, there needs to be more regional sections of the calendar that they tried to introduce before where they have some races in in America, some races in Asia, some races in Europe and have them all split into sections rather than go, for example, to um, where is it when you go to Mexico, I think it was like Mexico and then you go to Japan after that. Something crazy, like I, I'm, you know, I'm just throwing an example at the top of my head here. So, yeah, it's a lot going on right now with the calendar, and uh, I, I don't think it's necessarily ch- selling its soul, as the article suggested. But um, there needs to be a balance addressed here, and then hopefully F1 can find that. The challenge I find for Sabah is as much I think as we all enjoy it as a as a TV product, and, and just in terms of the racing excitement that it generates, is if you look at the calendar. I don't know where you find a spot for Spa, and I'm just looking at the projected events and the current agreements. Bahrain is on the contract, is on the calendar almost indefinitely at $50 million a year. Saudi's on through 2025 at $55 million. Australia, of course, just re-upped with that huge new deal. They're paying roughly $40 million. Imola just signed a new contract through 2025. They've got a bit of a bargain, I believe, at $20 million, which is a bit of a surprise. Miami, is, of course, is a collaboration between the sport and the local promoters. They're on the calendar through 2031. Spain just re-upped through 2026. Monaco is working on a renewal, which we're expecting to see or hear about shortly. Uh, Baku is on the calendar through 2024 with an expected renewal date shortly at $55 million a year. Canada's on the calendar through 2029 at $30 million. France is going to drop. They were only paying $22 million. Austria is going to be on the calendar indefinitely. They have currently have a multi-year extension that the race organizer, which of course is Red Bull, can opt into. They pay between $25 and $30 million a year. Great Britain's on the calendar through 2020. So we'll probably start hearing some renewal talks shortly. They're paying 25. Expect that to be much more. Hungary's on the calendar through 27. They pay 40 million a year. Belgium is going to drop. They were paying just 22 million dollars a year, like France. Netherlands, Zandvoort, they're paying 32. They've got a 2023 plus option for two more years. Italy, Monza, they're on the calendar through 2024. Expect to hear more about that renewal coming shortly. They're paying 25. Russia is off the calendar, which is great. Singapore is looking at renewing now. They're going to rejoin the calendar this year. They pay almost $40 million a year. Japan, they're on the calendar through 2024. I'm sure we'll hear a lot more about a renewal opportunity there. They pay just 25 million. Mexico, that is a race that we could potentially see drop. They're only on the calendar through 2022. I think we'll probably hear a lot more about renewal coming there. They pay $25 million a year. Austin, we're expecting a huge, huge new deal there shortly. Brazil, they're on the calendar through 25. Abu Dhabi's on the calendar through 2030. China is on the calendar through 2025, but I think there's a couple of options there. And then, of course, Qatar paying $55 million a year. They are on the calendar now through 2031. So there's some options there, but I think for some of the race organizers or the promoters whose events... uh, kind of see their contract end shortly, probably more now than ever. They're probably financially incented to re-up as long as they are on the calendar, simply because there's so much interest in the sport presently. And of course, race hosting fees are incredibly important to Formula One, that Formula One at the end of the day is a publicly traded company and they need to show value to their shareholders. And they earn income through three ways. They earn income through race sanctioning fees. So the money that race promoters pay them to have the right to host a Formula One Grand Prix. They earn money through 
major corporate sponsorships and they earn revenue through TV revenue and streaming. So this is one of the three channels that they earn revenue from. And I think currently they earn about $600 million a year through hosting fees. And I think if you speak to Stefano Domenicali and things or in his team, they'll explain that they want to get that number to closer to a billion dollars and adding races like Qatar and Las Vegas, where they know they can extract 50, 60, $70 million in hosting fees is a lot more appealing than going to Paul Ricard, where you're going to get maybe $22 million dollars. The other big conversation here is that in a lot of these cases, the race promoter is in fact the state and it's not a local for-profit race organizer. And recently, Stefano Domenicali was actually asked about the German Grand Prix and German motorsport publication, motorsporttotal.com. And they asked like, hey, what is the current situation with Germany? And he said, quote unquote, we are not hearing anything from Germany, meaning neither the state, local government, or a private race promoter has reached out with any conversations or discussions about returning to Germany. And I think in a country like Germany, the state, local government has no intentions to fund a private for-profit Formula One Grand Prix, that if it's going to happen there, it's going to have to happen through a for-profit race promoter. And I think those race promoters just can't get their heads wrapped around how they can make it profitable if they're going to have to spend 40 or $50 million on race sanctioning fees. So I think right now we sit and wait. Maybe we're going to see something that we saw in Austria. Of course, in Austria, Red Bull, the actual Red Bull organization bought the Red Bull ring, rebuilt it. They pay the sanctioning fees. And maybe ultimately, if we do see Audi and Porsche enter the sport, maybe the Volkswagen group wants to get involved and help sponsor or promote that event. Oh, my friend, we're running out of topics here. I think we have one more quick topic, actually two more quick topics. One, and I don't know how deeply we need to go into this, but former F1 race director Michael Massey is set for a top role in the Australian Supercars Championship. And also, and this is of interest to uh, our American listeners, of course, the Austin Grand Prix, the US Grand Prix completely sold out in record time this year. They've actually announced that they're going to build a temporary infield grandstand so they can sell a few thousand additional tickets. I was excited to announce this to our listeners, many of whom are hoping to attend that race, but it is already sold out. So the US Grand Prix race organizers added some additional grand prance or grandstand to increase the capacity for the U.S. Grand Prix this year, but it is already sold out. My friend, I think unless you've got some comments on Michael Massey joining the Australian Supercars Championship, I don't have a lot else, my friend. Well, I mean, all that's left to say really is, you know, just well done to everybody, you know, well done to, uh, you know, the, the North American regions really, you know, it's, it's amazing to see from a British fan's perspective how F1 has really grown in popularity over in the States and in North America. You know, we we know you guys love your racing. We really do. You know, we, we see some American series. We know you guys, how passionate you are. It's just F1 has managed to find a way through Drive to Survive and other things as well. Of course, we know we shouldn't forget that to encourage you guys to come down there and create an atmosphere like what we saw last season was absolutely phenomenal to see. You guys obviously loved it in Miami as well. That was a nice, new, vibrant flavor that I think we experienced and we really enjoyed as well. I mean, some things were a little bit strange. Uh, the podium, um, the podium escort was certainly interesting that Max Verstappen got in Miami, which seemed to go on forever. But, um, you know, that's neither here nor there. But uh, no, no, well done, guys. Honestly, it's really, really great to see F1 doing so well in the States and great to see that you guys love it so much. You know, it's just really, really fun. And I'm glad that you guys can get on board with one of my greatest passions. It's really, really nice. So, you know, well done on that. Um, yeah, Michael Massey, hopefully he does well. 
Um, it was a shame how things went down after Abu Dhabi last year. Obviously, I'm sure he would have had a lot to say, but of course he mentioned in that interview uh, that he had a while ago that he signed an NDA to prevent him from talking about it, despite the fact he was talking about it anyway, so not quite sure what went on there. Um, hopefully things go okay and you know he can just carry on really because uh, it was such a hard thing to sort of come back from what happened there. And ultimately it wasn't just his fault. There was a lot of other things, but we'll probably never get to the bottom of, unfortunately. Um but the sooner that we can just sort of move on from what happened there, you know, all, you know, well, permitting, I'm sure a lot of Lewis Hamilton fans and other people won't want me to say that, but I think for everyone now, it's in our best interest to try and enjoy the sport now and just remember what happened in Abu Dhabi. Never forget it and make sure that it never happens again, really. And hopefully for all parties, we can all just move on remembering that and, uh, Better times ahead. That's all we can ask for. The uh, U.S. Grand Prix attendance last year cracked 400,000 people. Of course, now with uh, the added capacity of a new infield grandstand, I think we can probably expect to hear and see a bigger number this year. And I also really appreciate your perspective on uh, enjoying the popularity that is uh, being enjoyed by Formula One in North America. And I think sometimes to that term that you used earlier about geek keeping, I think sometimes folks in Europe are a little bit sensitive about the fact that, hey, look, we might have three races in the United States. But when you consider the fact that the population of North America, the United States and Canada is 400 million people, maybe it's not unreasonable that we have three or four races in, in this country, especially when, for instance, we have two races in Italy and all the power to Italy, because that, of course, is the motorsports backbone of Europe in so many ways. But ultimately, I, I love your perspective. And I think three or four races in the United States is, is great as long as they can kind of separate them on the calendar and they can find ways to make them all unique and, and distinct and make sure that there's sustained fan interest ongoing. I think it's it's a great thing for everyone. I think it's a great thing for the sport. My friend, with that, I'm going to kick it over to you. How can people follow you? Where can they find you on social media and where can they track down your podcast? So uh, thank you, Mark, of course, for the opportunity. And it's been a lot of fun being on this show. But guys, of course, if you want to hear for, more from me, and more from some great guests like Mark has obviously been on my show recently. Um, you know, he's a fantastic guest. We've had some other great guests as well uh, that you might be familiar with. But if you want to check us out, we're DNF1, as it says on a nice little badge if you're watching this podcast rather than just listening to it. Um, you can check us out on YouTube. We have our podcast on there. Just type in DNF1 on YouTube. You can see video episodes of our podcast on there. And of course, our podcast is available on all your favorite podcasting platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Just type in the DNF1 F1 podcast. You'll find us on there. You'll recognize the logo. And uh, yeah, we cover race reviews, previews, all of the latest news, talking points and gossip in the world of Formula One, an independent F1 podcast made by the fans and for the fans like yourself. So if you want to hear from us or hear from me a little bit more, Check us out on there. I would absolutely be loving it if you guys could join us for some, well, great F1 chat, really. My friend, I cannot thank you enough for joining, especially on such short notice. My name is Mark Hamilton. This, again, is the Skidaria F1 podcast. If you'd like to give us a follow on Twitter, you can do that at Skidaria F1 pod. And please, 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 if you like what you hear and you listen on Spotify, if you could give us a review or a rating, that means the world to us. And of course, if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, a review or a rating goes a long, long, long way. And we greatly appreciate it. We read every single one of the reviews. 
Again, Mr. Daly's going to be back in a couple of days, but before then, we're going to be joined by F1 Techie straight out of Lebanon, and we are going to do a technical breakdown of the 2026 power unit regulations. We're going to make it very much a power unit 101. So even if you know nothing about how the engine in your road car works, we're going to take it right back to the basics and really break down all of the concepts to give you a sense of how a traditional power unit works before we get into how a Formula One power unit works and delivers power and creates electrical energy, blah, 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 blah. All of that to said, there's lots to come. We also have an upcoming interview with Kevin Clark from The Ringer and also Megan Schuster of The Ringer as well, both of which we're incredibly excited to deliver. Adam, thanks once again for everyone listening at home. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back soon. I feel like a locomotive sipping, drinking Arizona. Mixtape just around the corner. Did a lot in California. Can't wait to drop this on you. Yeah, they gon' have fun with that Smash like Songum and my songs gon' break through like a running back